0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Season 2 of Get the Lead Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Uh, We are going to be talking today uh, and starting to move into the area of toxicities uh, and just exactly what some of these chemicals that were poured into the ground will do to the human body and will do to the water that we drink and will do to the soil that we farm in and obviously to the communities around Ramapo. This is going to get a little bit more serious a little bit more scientific right now. And for that reason, we have the good fortune of Howard Horowitz with us today. Chuck, why don't you just talk a little bit about uh, our special guest today?
1: Well, Howard Horowitz is a uh, former professor at Ramapo College, we can call him Doctor Horowitz, okay. and uh, Howard has quite extensive background in dealing with trying to establish a healthier policy in coping with the carcinogens that we liberally spray upon our community and our ecosystems. So we'll be hearing about that, no doubt, when uh, we get to our roundtable.
0: Okay, then, without any further ado, let us proceed
1: with "Get the Let Out" with
0: Doctor Chuckstead and Doctor Howard Horowitz. Chuck, take it
1: away. Thank you, Joe. The next three episodes that we're doing come from the chapter in my Get the Lead Out book, which is called Lead Plastic and Nail Polish. And the first section that I'm reading here is lead was essentially the common base metal, which is the standard bonding element that was in the paint. So lead was the common base metal used in general paint production. Although public awareness of the hazards associated with this soft metal increased through the second half of the 20th century, the auto industry continued to use lead in their prime coats, color mixes, and undercoating. As early as 1908, occupational physician Alice Hamilton noted that lead had endangered workers since the first century after Christ. Two years later, she documented that the painting trades yield the largest number of victims to lead exposure. Yet as late as 1945, federal specifications approved of white lead, a compound of almost all white paints and light-colored paints, as the preferred pigment for all household paints. Then by 1952, the Lead Industry Association we're calling that the L.I.A., claimed that white lead still reigned as the preferred coating for both exterior and interior decorations. Tinted, thinned, thickened, and colored with the addition of zinc oxide, magnesium silicate, and titanium dioxide. With a linseed oil base, white lead was promoted as increasing flexibility as a plasticizing paint. In fact, the L.I.A., defined paint film as a plastic. They said, quote, like many plastics, it would become hard, brittle, and inflexible if it did not contain a plasticizer. White lead pigments permit the proper formulation of paints that provide flexible films not only after application, but throughout the life of the paint, end quote. So, at the same time, the industry made these glowing claims in its 1952 edition of Lead in Modern Industry. It was quietly withdrawing support for promotion of lead in interior house paint in response to intense publicity generated by popular and professional articles, as well as public health studies. Still, lead paint... In exterior house paints, industrial use and automobile finishes remained as a significant part of the market, despite the fact that lead as a pigment in paint was a major source of environmental pollution and was considered an important cause of childhood lead poisoning. Lead as a base component for exterior paints, both residential and commercial, was phased out by the late 1960s but remained a part of automobile production in the U.S. during forge years in the Ramapo region through 1980. The toxicity of lead has long been known. Its reproductive and neurological effects are credited by some historians with adding to the decline of the Roman Empire. Typical lead symptoms include intestinal cramps or painter's colic, renal failure, sterility, and irreversible brain damage. In milder cases, it can cause irritability, while in children, it is believed to cause hyperactivity, behavioral disorders, and learning disabilities. Evidence of chronic poisoning can be obtained from x-rays. Lead deposits on bones and teeth as lead phosphate, which produces what's called lead lines on an x-ray. In the late 1990s, a study of lead levels in deciduous teeth, that is, baby teeth, was published by the UF2 Center for Environmental Research in Leipzig, Germany. The teeth were collected in dentist surgeries between April of 94 and January of 95. The majority of the 91 children were male, about 74%. The study examined concentrations of lead in teeth as a measure of internal exposure in the past and low-level chronic exposure continually. This study also took into consideration a variety of risk factors of long-term exposure, such as involuntary smoking, including that to be of the expected mothers, the effect of traffic, how children play outdoors or indoors, and, of course, the housing conditions they lived in. The primary results of this landmark work illustrated an improved understanding of the relationship and long-term exposure to lead but failed to isolate particular lead exposures in connection with lower IQ ratings. While much of the symptoms associated with lead poisoning, including intestinal cramps, renal failure, sterility, and brain damage, could be the result of a variety of potential exposures, it is the consistency of these symptoms within the Ramapo community that is troubling. An appropriate health study has yet to be conducted, and there has been no support for a deciduous teeth study. Irritability, hyperactivity, behavior disorders, learning disabilities in early childhood are considered a norm among a low-income community. A community of Ramapo's living no more than 30 miles from the Ringwood site at Stag Hill in Marwan, New Jersey, subjected to similar economic deprivation, indicate few of these symptoms. The only difference is this community lives apart from the paint sludge exposure. It would stand to reason that a comparison study of the Turtle Clan in Ringwood with the Wolf Clan in Stag Hill would put the lifestyle diagnosis to rest. So far, this has not been done. Antimony, a lead alloy, increases the hardness and mechanical strength of lead and has been used in manufacturing flame-proofing compounds, paint, ceramic enamels, glass, and pottery. Liquid intimity has the exceptional property of expanding, not unlike water, when it solidifies, making it an excellent constituent for filling in the crevices of a mold form, yet another important contribution in lead use. Recent applications have included plastics, rubber, and a small amount of the highly purified intimity is used by the computer industry in making semiconductors. The primary threat of antimony to public health is from the concentration within the surface and groundwater at hazardous waste sites, as some soluble forms of antimony are quite mobile in water. Some genetic toxicological effects have been observed in animal testing. Acute and subchronic effects have been reported in human cases. In 1944... Subchronic and chronic inhalation tests performed with several doses of intimity dust on rats. For a period of 12 months, followed by a one-year observation period, produced microscopic changes in the lungs, which were limited to subacute or chronic interstitial carcinomas of the lung. Effects on intimity workers have been primarily signs of lung irritation, gastric irritation, and Fibrosis, metal fume fever, cardiac effects, and dermal reactions. Intimidate dermatitis, known as intimidate spots, has been an accompaniment to intimidate processing from the start. In 1993, a study indicated lesions on the forearms, wrists, thighs, lower legs, and in the flexures, the trunk, back of the neck, the scrotum, but not on the face, hands, or feet. Nosebleeds were also reported. Just as a side note here, in the 1970s, a lot of Ramapo children from the Ringwood area were diagnosed as having ringworm by local clinic. Uh, As described to me, it wasn't ringworm, it was intimidate spots. But the children were given a topical ointment, which does temporarily clear it up. And then when they got the ringworm again, which of course was really the revelation of intimidate spots, when they got it again... The response on the medical community professionals was, well, the behavior of these children has not yet changed, so they're bound to get it again, and they were given more ointment. Now back to the text. In 2006, upon receiving information that ATV activity was eroding the riverbanks along the Ramapo adjacent to a site known as the Meadows, my students joined me for a field trip there. The meadows is a low-lying floodplain that had been the site of more than a dozen houses on the New York side of the state line in the village of Hilburn. In the early 1990s, after reporting more than 80 55-gallon steel drums of paint sludge, the DEC investigated the meadows and ultimately found more than 100 of these drums, which were there and then were removed. An aeration tower was installed and remained on site until readings indicated it was no longer needed. Some years later... When my students and I came upon the dirt trails from the off-road activity, we found a great deal of hardened paint sludge had been revealed. In one location, I found the remnants of a campfire. Scratching at the ashes, I could smell the smoky, sweet scent of lead paint. It has a unique odor. You see, as a young man, I worked for my uncle, reglazing warehouse windows. We used a little handheld settling torch to soften up the old leaded window caulk. And that was when I first came to recognize the musky sweetness of lead. This helps to explain a curiosity among the Ramapo children during the time of the dumping. There were many reports of children playing with colorful, muddy paint, even making sludge pies and even eating them. At Ringwood, Vivian Milligan remembered chewing lead paint like gum. Billy Cuomo of the Ramapo Hamlet near Hilburn, New York, recalled making and eating sludge pies with his brother, at the Meadows site. No doubt it was the sweetness of the substance that encouraged this. Just as the children sampled paint sludge, the wildlife ate exposed paint, contaminating deer, woodchuck, rabbit, and squirrel, which in turn followed up through the food chain when bear, bobcat, fox, and hawk ate those animals. We eventually got excavation at the meadow site. Billy Cuomo, whose brother died years later of throat cancer, was not surprised to hear of the tonnage of waste removed from that site. Cindy Fountain, another Ramapo whose early childhood years were spent at the meadows, remembered the dumping there, as well as the smoldering waste fires that lasted for days. It was a part of the village's history that, long before the Ford plant was built, back when R.J. Davidson was shop supervisor for W.W. Snow's Hilburn Ironworks Village, trash was taken down below the meadows where it was eventually burned and then shoved into the river. The village had a long history of burning waste along the riverbank, and as the century continued, that waste became increasingly toxic. At this time, medical science cannot confirm or deny that the throat cancer that Billy's brother suffered or the numerous cancers Cindy Fountain has had to endure with her childhood exposure, well, they can tell us this much, as illustrated in the Lipsig German study is that the odds were against them with the thick smoke of the smoldering dump and the first bite of a paint sludge pie. Since the 1960s, there has emerged a growing movement to reduce, restrict, and eliminate the use of lead in domestic production. By the late 1970s, leaded gasoline had all but become a thing of the past. Leaded house paint was entirely off the market. Lead as a coloring agent in cosmetics was eliminated. And lead in domestic toy finishes was also replaced by a water-based finish. While lead coatings and mixes were still in use offshore production, elsewhere in other words, and could be imported here, the public had become sensitive to lead exposure and demanded transparency in order to avoid further contact. The industrial giants quietly withdrew from lead use. And despite economic fear-mongering, the economy did not collapse when benign replacement materials filled the gap. The same cannot be said about plastics. But we'll hear about plastics in our next episode.
0: We are now starting to see just exactly how serious all of this was. And just exactly how much real damage has been done. I, I'm curious, I have some questions for Dr. Horowitz. Like, when this debris is burned, does that in any way lessen the dangers of its toxicity? Or does it increase it because it, it makes it airborne, I guess?
2: It increases it because it becomes airborne. Also, because the burning itself can create new, pop, new compounds that may be um, even more toxic.
0: Really? man, oh, man. It's the worst solution yeah. of
2: all, yeah. really. Is, is, um, there was a time in New Jersey when there was a mandate to build an incinerator in every, every region. Thankfully, very few got built, and those that were became um, sources of toxicity on, in an ongoing way. W- what is the alternative to burning? Is there? Well, the, ultimately, the, the, there, there are not great alternatives. The best one is probably um, really the best one is not, not producing as much. That's the, that's the alternative but if, once we have it secure landfills become basically a, the only only option and then they have got to be unfortunately the politics of that get very difficult look at the story with the you know, high level nuclear waste you know the the science was over, overwhelmed by the politics
0: and nuclear waste's been a problem for years and years and continues to be i guess that's oh yeah absolutely and and w-
2: basically a lot of it has to do with them. Um, with toxics in general, the regulatory process has focused on lethal doses. Used to what used to be called the LD fifty or LC fifty lethal concentration that kills half the population becomes the main focus of a lot of regulation, and it's it's not a relevant standard for dealing with chronic health problems where, where the hazards come. Far, far lower doses than than the one that Start people don't drop dead out yeah, are affected, but lethal means dead.
3: Right. So studying but, that's not going to help anyone. Studying the lower doses, we need to. Yeah, look but at. most of the
2: re- most of the regulation has been s- centered around them. Um, how wh- what the lethal dose is, and often the chronic hazards slip through essentially
0: unregulated. So they're not really talking about the effect on a child's education or, you know, things like that. They're talking about the ultimate effect, almost as a distraction from maybe the more serious, I don't know if it's more serious, but certainly a more critical problem.
2: Well, yes. The living. The problem is, is it is more difficult to determine the effects at sublethal levels. For example... Um, in the kinds of problems that um, Chuck was describing at Stag Hill and Ringwood, it's very hard to get a big enough sample size to have statistically meaningful outcomes according to strict science calculations. Mm-hmm. And so in order to get powerful results, similar situations have to be grouped together to create larger what sample sizes. What,
1: what he's saying is so amazing because I contacted the CDC yeah. uh, mm-hmm. when Pat Osterhout was talking to me about the hypospadia situation, right. which we're going to talk about next week in the next episode. And their response was, well, how many cases do you have? And what's the population demographic? And I only had a handful, but it was already spiking well above the national standard. Right. So I felt that was justified in getting them to come in and participate. And they said, no, your population demographic is too small. And I said, yeah, but you've got to measure it against what is the standard, Nash? They, they just backed away. They said, no, we, we're not doing that. And what's what's so galling about this is the regulatory agencies are essentially justifying the continued use of carcinogens that are actually listed with the ATSDR. They're actually listed. Yeah. Well,
2: and again, I had a parallel situation with, with, with my herbicides battles um, because we often... For example, in in Oregon, in the coast range of Oregon, where uh, the herbicides that were part of Agent Orange continued to be used long after Vietnam. Um, One of them, 2,4-D, is still in use. The other one, 2,45-T, we got off the market, which I was a part of, one of hundreds of people. But anyway, in that process, there were people that were adversely affected, had miscarriages and, and, and birth problems. There were women on the coast... And there was a, like like the Kypospatia, there was a cluster, an Mm -hmm. obvious cluster Mm -hmm. in in this area. But the EPA, when I tried to make a map of it, they said, no, no, you can't do that because the sample size isn't large enough. And they have to group together. And so they ended up doing a much weaker thing, which they got the hospital data for the entire county. And they compared it with the hospital data for other parts of the region that didn't use the herbicide which are hard to find. They uh, kind of artificially said, well, this, this area does and this area doesn't. And they ended up with kind of muddy data that showed slightly higher problems with, with birth defects and, and among the coast, but not not big enough to make a difference. But they basically caused it to become muddy by insisting on requiring the hospital data on the grounds that the sample sizes weren't big enough otherwise. So this is a, this is a problem. I have a question. What
3: size... A community, or, or do they need for it to be valid enough for them to study? How many people? What's the optimal what, what cluster?
0: Size?
2: Well, the, the bigger the better, but with fewer than about thirty, nothing. And even there, the 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 wide the, 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 the variations are very wide with even mm-hmm. that size of a sample. So yeah. that becomes an obstacle to, to dealing with them. Science Why? and mainstream
0: science. You know, I've had some experience with the New Jersey DEP because of a polluter. serial polluter in in my neighborhood a serious one too he's now got a 17 acre lot uh, 70 feet high filled with uh, construction waste not more than 300 yards from the back line of my property and so we protested against that and we really you know worked to try to get to make some changes and they stopped him I hope, and all kinds of fines, this, that, and the other thing. Although nothing seems to happen to him, nothing. He just fines are too small. They they don't know fines are like you know pocket change. Right, it's like the cost of doing business for these guys. Yeah, thirty five hundred dollars for huge dump trucks full of this stuff. The fines don't really mean anything. So what I noticed was the DEP seemed almost more interested in just you know we'll just manage this problem let's just yeah we'll we'll issue a few fines a few citations maybe we'll put a sign up at the edge of his driveway that no one's allowed to come in here with the truck and we'll 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 say that he's a criminal and we'll uh, find him guilty of this that and the other thing and uh, everybody happy that's it we're all gonna go home now and that's kind of the way i feel it, it it's gone he, he drives around in his Escalade Cadillac. His daughter drives around in her Escalade Cadillac. They're doing fine. Everybody's happy. You know, the sky is blue. The coffee's hot. We've had all of this governmental activity, and then everything goes silent after that, and nothing really changes. This is a man who was polluting in Warwick, and then when caught there, just simply moved his operation to in New Jersey, a few miles down the road. Why is that? Why Why are the regulatory agencies who are responsible for protecting you know the department of environmental protection why are they not more focused on results really stopping, on stopping the person Can, no. does anybody have a sense of that or
2: boy that's a difficult thing to answer um to some degree the structure makes it hard you know people i and it's easy to say and maybe it's true in some cases the the, the individuals themselves are just bureaucrats they they went, went through a brainwashing process which they became bureaucratic in their thought process and that may be the case but i think maybe inside them they do want to do the right thing they just somehow don't really know how yeah
1: what what happened with me uh, which we learn about later in this series in the in the torn valley and down at the ramapo well field is i got to work very closely with the environmental engineers and they're working for the polluter. But they're doing the work that the state regulatory agency, in this case would be the DEC of New York, had, had uh, outlined for them. And they had to follow through with this work. And I got to work very closely with them. And <clears throat> they admitted to me all along that they were rooting for our advocacy and hoping that we could convince our local government to press for this because they knew their client was destroying the watershed. They're environmental engineers, and though they're they're educated in engineering the recuperation of the environment, that means they also have the knowledge to know what destroys it. So they were admitting that to me, but then quietly saying, but I never said this, because they're working ultimately for the polluter who's expected to do the cleanup. We got so close so close, and I can't say names because I probably get them fired again, still to this day. but we got so close that if there was a chance I missed something that I should have seen, they indicated it for me. So I could see it and then I could document it and then that could be included in the cleanup. But they didn't want their fingerprints on it because we live in a state of indentitude, professional indentitude. There is no ethics behind any of this. But there are good people who work within the system, and you have to kind of find them. They weren't all like that, but the ones that were were all that I really needed to keep moving along. Now, on the other hand, they needed me. They needed a person who knew enough about what they were talking about that I could then articulate this thing to the municipality and and so forth. But it was so sketchy, and, and they often talked about it. They lamented how sketchy it was.
3: I had a small situation where they literally were just changing a sewer pipe in front of my house, and the gentleman went under there. There was a problem. They, saw they tried to get to it with jets, and they saw something broken. they went down, and someone who had gone in there before with a machine had yanked the drain from the house right off of the sewer pipe. And he said that to me. He goes, I'll tell you right now, the guy who did this job here grabbed your pipe and pulled it up off of the thing, and that's why there's gravel all in between, and that's what we found. And he goes, but don't ask me to tell the, the town of, <laughs> in this case, NIAC that right. because I have a business that I need to run, right. and they give me my jobs, right. and they give me and they pay me. And so it is, it is a monetary thing that really money gets in the way. And uh, for some of these companies, survival, yeah. unfortunately, gets yeah. in the
2: way of them doing the right thing. Yeah. And the other th- par- another part of the problem is that the regulatory agencies themselves when I was fighting herbicides in drinking water in lakes, which I got involved with in various places. I didn't bother with herbicides if it wasn't a drinking water lake, but if it was drinking water, then I, I jumped into in Greenwood Lake and some others. And what we found is that the um, the people that wrote the the management plans were the applicators themselves, yeah, and so yeah. you end up with a plan which is centered around um, herbicide application without really any alternatives being considered, yeah, and and so we had to call and say, hey, what about some alternatives? You know, you can do a, you know, a, a range of different options from hand pulling to all different things, and it was very hard because the the people doing it were basically. Um, Right, wedded to the mainstream
0: system that they always did. Yeah, I'm not interested in the alternative because that's not what I do.
2: Right, Gilbert. The guy Gilbert, he sprayed about you know hundred lakes a year around this area, and so we ended up, at one time we had a debate at Rambo College about Greenwood Lake, and he came representing the the, the 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 spray situation, and he had he that's what he did.
3: Yeah, I remember that. So it's like the perpetrator. <laughs> It's the same person. Well, well, they study. they were
2: arguing there was not there was no harm to it. Okay, and and, and again, people people aren't dropping dead. You know, it's it's, right. it's it, in some sense maybe it's so diluted that it doesn't really matter. It's there's a it's possible. I have to take the position that it's not okay until to we put do, toxins into the drinking water of everybody because somebody indeed may end up suffering from. Of it. course,
0: right until until we know the truth, the facts, till we have the data. The danger persists, right? right? Well, with that, we're going to bring to close uh, this week's session of getting the lead out. This is getting really interesting, and I'm so glad that Dr. Horowitz is with us today because I'm really learning. I always learn from you, Chuck, but... We've got a really serious situation here. I've got some other questions, but I'm going to wait until next week. Okay, well, let me say
2: something right now because I've been working on a plasticizer issue. There's been a lot of attention to the forever chemicals, the PFAs, the perfect And they've been much in the news lately. And yet one of the biggest sources of them is not being mentioned at all, which is artificial turf. Ar- artificial turf is gigantic as an industry, and not surprising. It's a way to um, recycle lots of tires because it's made of um, recycled tires and plastic, plastic blades of grass. Mm -hmm. Every blade of grass, however, would be too sticky if it wasn't also treated with plasticizers, PFAs, to make them more slippery and therefore more functional as grass. So we have this massive amount of toxicity being released they, the artificial turf typically lasts 10 years or so. Then it all has to be put to a landfill somewhere, creating, again, toxicity problems in that area because they're going to continue to drain the PFAs. Will to drain so into the water. So plasticizer buried in the ground. So um, I just want to mention something to think about for next week. that sure. That plasticizers, you know, we hear about Teflon, but, and this is a kind of a Teflon too, but basically a, one of the biggest sources isn't, hasn't been talked about. And, the, and the, even the people complaining about PFAs don't seem to know about it.
0: Well, we're going to definitely so. talk about that next week because uh, that uh, this is a perfect lead into <laughs> that. But I want to lead the audience wanting more. That's how you run a good podcast. Folks, thanks so much for being with us this week. We really appreciate it. Fortunately, we're going to have Dr. Horowitz with us again next week. So uh, we're going to get into this in depth. And this is of particular interest to me because we just paid in Vernon about $3.5 million dollars For artificial turf baseball fields for our kids. Okay, how about that? Wow, wow. Thanks everybody. (laughs) We'll (laughs) we'll see you next week.
1: See you next week.
0: And now for a word from our favorite sponsor. The Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange Book Bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans, and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the themontgomerybookexchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based kinder music program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845 522-9652 TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.